Getting out of an abusive relationship early makes a huge difference. And I'm proud to say I did come in as a victim, but I am a survivor. Then I could see my mom. My mom was walking toward us. And I got excited. And I was like, there's my mom. And then he didn't stop. I'm trying to keep it together, I said. I gave in to the tears. And I hated that. It, it's not necessarily the easiest process. It's not necessarily the prettiest process, but it is the most effective process. Like, you can do this. I'm going to tell you 100% you can do this, and you're so worth it to do this. I'm sure losing any child is is a real arrow through your heart, but but uh, you know she was she was great. She was a, a, a friend and a family member and our daughter. It feels just as good the tenth time as it did the first time uh, to have one of your citizens that you're out there protecting walk up and tell you thank you. There is one thing stronger in me than fear, and that's my determination. Welcome back. This is Jen Lee, the creator and host of I Need Blue. If this is your first time joining us, we are happy you are here. If you would like to hear other stories or you have a story to submit, visit www.ineedblue.net. There you will find all of the I Need Blue episodes, a photo gallery, merchandise, and most importantly, the Get Help tab, which offers national hotline resources. Please note, I Need Blue does contain stories which feature graphic content and could be triggering. Please seek help if needed. Remember, you always come first. Today's episode touches upon a topic we haven't discussed before. Death by suicide is sudden, sometimes violent, and usually unexpected. I have two guests with me today. Leslie is the surviving spouse of Thomas Forbes. End of watch, June 6th, 2011, Groton City Police Department. Also here today is Lori Putnam, who is the co-founder and director of services and outreach for Survivors of Blue Suicide Foundation. Check out survivorsofbluesuicide.org for more information. Also on www.ineedblue.net under the Get Help tab, you will find their information. Thank you, ladies, for being here today. Your story will shed some light on what it's like being the survivor of this tragedy, a tragedy which tends to end with several unanswered questions. In addition, through your sharing of information, we will learn the SBS mission resources and how it is impacting the LE law enforcement community. Welcome, ladies. It is my privilege to host you as my guest today. Hi, thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Uh, Lori, I'm going to go ahead and let you take a quick minute and just tell us a little bit about SBS. So I started for it. The story starts with Concerns of Police Survivors, which is a nonprofit organization that supports families and coworkers of officers killed in the line of duty. Um, I started working there in 2009. Um, I left there as the director of chapter and survivor support. So through my 10 years, I had very hands-on contact with law enforcement agencies, survivors, 
um, where I was sometimes the first point of contact, but I was the resource to kind of get them in touch with our chapters and the information about cops and what happens and the resources they can get. And I would often get calls from suicide survivors asking what is available for us. Well, as we all know, there's a lot of different definitions to line of duty death. COPS doesn't make that definition. They they go off of four other entities. And so we all know that law enforcement suicide is not in that definition of line of duty death. And so it was heartbreaking every time to try to find resources and try to, you know, get some help, like a Facebook group. And so my director of operations at the time, Shelly Jones, is a retired Columbia Police Department um, assistant chief. And she had a suicide and a line of duty death in her agency um, throughout her career. And she approached cops and said, you know, can we start a separate organization modeled after cops, but for law enforcement suicide? And the Cops National Board voted um, unanimously to uh, let us start this organization. So I went with her. Um, It was a mission that called to me um, throughout the years. So I had no, no hesitation um, to, to start this. So we started Survivors of Blue Suicide Foundation in 2020, um, with a founding committee and offer tons of resources, which I know we'll get into throughout the show, but we sat down for a mission statement and we wanted people to know instantly off the bat what we do. So we foster hope by uniting survivors of law enforcement suicide to support one another and honor our fallen heroes. That is really truly our mission as survivors, surviving families and coworkers. And so that's a little bit about us. And uh, like I said, I know we'll get into the resources throughout the show. Thank you. And Leslie, thank you for being here today. And I first want to preface, if I ask you any question that you are uncomfortable with, uh, whatever, please just tell me and we will move on. This is your story. I want you to tell you, tell us how, uh, how it works, but yeah. Thank you. And thank you to Laurie as well. I, I can tell you that the SBS has been a lifeline. Um, and I'm going 11 years out from my husband taking his life. So um, I just, I don't even know how they found me, to be honest. I I was asked to join just about a year ago, and I didn't even know how much I needed it until I started to become a part of it. So I am just so forever grateful to both Laurie and Shelly. And the thing that's so important to me is it's not just words, their mission statement, they really live it. And they really live it for me and the survivors. So there's just no words sometimes to thank them or let them know that what they're doing, oh, it, it, it truly affects us. So thank you, Lori. Yes, thank you, Lori. I look forward to more partnerships with you in the future, too. I, I'm hoping that I can help you in other ways as well. So, Leslie, why don't we start talking about your your relationship with your husband, because he was obviously more than just a police officer and uh, more than just a husband. So why don't we start talking about him? Oh, you know, it it always surprises me 
that uh, my heart starts beating so rapidly when I start to share the story. And, and it's not from nerves. Um, I think, you know, the body just holds on to all these feelings that day to day we're not even aware of. And but when I start to say his name, I just uh, I think my heart just gets so filled maybe with memories and love. Um, we met young in life in college and I actually was in a very serious relationship, but he was extremely determined. So uh, he saw me on campus and decided he was going to marry me. Was the story he he told everyone and uh, I wasn't that interested at first, but he was extremely persistent and um, and, and not in a weird way. He didn't he couldn't take no for an answer, but in a very loving way, actually. And so we met and within I want to say two months, we were engaged much to my family's aghast of, you know, what is she doing? Who is this person? And we were married um, my junior year of college and he was just graduating and we got on the police department. So really our whole marriage was being part of a police family. And he was extremely accomplished um, as a police officer. He did so many outstanding things for the community. He had a difficult childhood and he had a lot of anxieties related to his upbringing. Um, and mine was a little different in that I come from a very large Sicilian family. So he found a lot of comfort, I think, in that aspect of my family, of something he was always searching for, those roots, um, the failing of family, which I could offer to him. But I also grew up with a mom that battled a lot of mental illness. So it wasn't all, you know, peaches and perfect and everything that people think of either. We both came with with somewhat of a little bit of hurt, but together we were really great together. So we were married 31 years and it was a marriage. It was a real marriage. Everything wasn't always perfect. You know, we we fought, we made up, but it was we were dedicated to each other. Uh, we have two daughters. So the oldest was born in 1983. So we had been married almost four years. And my younger daughter was born three years later in 1986. And all they ever knew was, you know, dad was a police officer. Um, growing up, it was your typical, uh, if one person's in law enforcement, we often spent a lot of time at the police department because it was their way to have dinner with their dad. So with, you know, them going to school and him working second or third shift, oftentimes we would meet him if he had time or it was a break and you know the youngest one would be does dad have any customers and that would be whoever was they had anybody in the jail that day and so you know we have all those stories um and fond memories of being a very strong police family family in a unit and within our small community i was a teacher i still am a teacher and he was the police officer so we were very dedicated and, and well known in our community um, and we both felt like we were kind of living the dream of both our passions through our jobs and our family together. Uh, we were a very typical, strong, loving group, the four of us. 
That's great. I, I love when people share memories because that's how we keep our loved ones alive is through sharing those. So anytime throughout this, if a memory pops into your head, please feel free to share it. I love that. If he had to describe his 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 role and his passion when it came to being a law enforcement officer, what do you think he would say? You know, in the beginning, there was a lot of excitement and he didn't want to miss out on anything. And so he always wanted to be involved, uh, I think, as young police officers often are. And then um, as time went on and he moved up the ranks, he had more and more on his shoulders as he became in charge of others. So there would be times he would come home and be quite wound up, but not want to share. There would be some times that he would be open and we would share. And, you know, I would always get the phone call first. Um, I'm coming home and I look worse than it was. Like maybe he had blood on his uniform. So he would prepare me and he's like, and I'm okay, but, you know, I'm coming home. And so those moments I would know about and could could probe more. But there were other times where I, I knew things were bothering him, but he wasn't always that open and sharing. It just kind of builds up after time, you know, years and years and years of those small incidents of being in law enforcement and just never knowing. You just don't know what awaits you. And then, like I said, as he be, moved up the rank and finally he was lieutenant, which in their department made him second in charge. Um, and at times he was the acting chief. He really took on that responsibility of trying to protect all of his officers. And that played heavy on him. So he was in law enforcement for 31 years when he died by suicide. And there was a lot of political stress too that I could see happening within the community that also made it difficult for Tom. So I could see some of that anxiety and the stress would definitely come home. Um, he wouldn't always share, but I could see it there. Did he have anyone underneath him that was killed in the line of duty? Officer that died in the line of duty. Yep. Um, his name was Bill Snyder and he was killed while he was out directing traffic and uh, a car hit him. And so he died. And he was a close friend that happened somewhat early in his career. Um, they also had some incidences where uh, my husband and his chief were held hostage and he, they were able to um, have that end successfully for everybody, but, but the stress plays into that. And I also think for a while, you know, they're celebrated when something like that happens, it becomes public and celebrated and they might publicly be acknowledged in the newspaper or an award. And all of that is really wonderful, but there's also underneath the emotions that are still there that you have to go through, you know, and any of those incidents by the grace of God just happens to every person that puts on a uniform and walks out the door every day. You know, it's just part of their job that they take on. Yeah. And a common conversation that I have with people is we cannot imagine the things that our police officers and first responders see on a day-to-day -day basis. I can't imagine. Never knowing and the stress piling on 
Um, and for my husband, it really started to affect him at the end of his career as he was thinking of leaving, as he was thinking of retiring. Um, he was close to retirement. And I started to see more anxiety and stress with him at that time. And my reaction was more, oh, come on, you've got this. We've done this for 31 years. Look at the things you've we've gotten through or you have gotten through. It's like, you got this, just hang on. You got like six weeks to go. Uh, not acknowledging or I think understanding on my part how severe his anxiety and depression was happening those last couple of weeks. When um, you mentioned at first that suicide is often sudden, unexpected and violent. Well, that's definitely my story. It was probably two weeks of severe anxiety sleeplessness, uh, maybe a little more, maybe like three weeks. It's hard for me to sometimes put it all together in a timeline because that those last that last month becomes a blur. But it was very sudden and it was like he was doing OK and all of a sudden he wasn't doing OK. So he did uh, seek out some help at the time he was acting chief. And so he was prescribed sleep medication but his fear was if I take the sleep medication, what's gonna happen when that call comes in at 2 a.m., which they always did. So it was this balance of how do I help myself mentally and physically and still do my job? And he didn't wanna take time off. Was there therapy other than just a sleeping pill? Um, he was, he started to see someone for post-traumatic stress disorder and he saw her, like somebody was treating him for his sleeplessness. Another person was, had described an antidepressant. Um, and then, and I don't even know if that was the person he was seeing. Uh, after Tom died, I tried to seek out the person that I knew he was talking to for uh, post-traumatic stress, but they closed their practice. And I don't even know if it would have been appropriate if he even would have spoken to me. I just, I saw him at the funeral and a few months later, I just had this desire to reach out. But at that point, he wasn't accessible. So um, it was like a train wreck at the end, you know, probably whatever medication he was taking, I think made his anxiety or suicidal thoughts worse. As the spouse watching your husband go through this, what was going through your head? I know you were kind of like, okay, I got this. I got this. Did you ever feel helpless? Um, that's a great question. I think there are a lot of times throughout our marriage, I felt helpless. I felt, I didn't know who to reach out to. Um, especially while Tom was a police officer, the thought really was you stay strong. Um, it was important for him to be seen as someone who had strength and was strong and not really let your emotions take over. Um, hopefully I think that's starting to change, but I mean, he first became a police officer in 1980 or 1981. So it still had that stigma of you don't let your emotions get the better of you. Uh, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, he was the one we all depended upon. He was strong. He seemed fearless. Um, if we needed anything, he was our go-to person. 
you know, he, and at the department, he was the same. Many of his officers went to him that were struggling and he did a lot of the counseling and got them help. Um, people in the fire department, I also shared their stories afterwards that Tom was their go-to person, that they just knew he, he had a gift for listening, for being strong and knowing what direction to help people. And he had been very successful in helping others, but he couldn't help himself, which is really sad. And I didn't know to help him. I honestly did not know we were at that point where he was considering suicide. I, it's hard for me to think it was a plan. I, in my heart, in my mind, I think it was this very impromptu, all of a sudden thought um, that he couldn't take back. The morning that he died by suicide, he made his lunch. I was going for a run first and then going right to school. And it was a beautiful morning and he gave me a kiss and we had plans to meet up afterwards. Um, and I was just reminding him of that. And I remember I said to him, also call your doctor because um, the last couple of nights while he was sleeping, he was just having like a lot of physical reactions, a lot of muscle jerks. And I could tell whatever medication he was on was acting a little weird in his body. And he said, yep, first thing I'll do. And um, I went for a run and went off to school and he went to his office and by 7.20, he had died by suicide. So he went into his office and he went into his closet and he used his gun. Wow. So my heart breaks in that those moments where he was alone made that decision um, and the pain he must have been in to do that. That's what breaks my heart. Yeah. And I didn't know. I actually had sent him a text saying, it's so beautiful out here this morning. He would at times run with me. There's a local area called, uh, it's a state park called Bluff Point that we would run together. I just texted him, oh my God, the morning is gorgeous. And I was surprised when I didn't get a text back. That kind of surprised me. You know, now I know why. Yeah. Um, when did you get the phone call? So I didn't get a phone call. I was in my classroom teaching, completely naive to anything. I love teaching, by the way. And um, it's besides being with my own children and, and my husband, our family, you know, my students were my family as well, loved them. So I was teaching very happy. And my principal came in. And he just said, you have to come with me a minute. And we were walking down the hall and he said, this is as bad as it gets. And I went, oh my God, they're firing me. What the heck did I do? Because, you know, parents complain every now and then. In my own mind, I'm going, who did I like fail? The school might be firing me. Or when he said, this is as bad as it gets. Never even thought my husband or my kids. And then they took me to a back room and I could see his chief way in the corner, but he wouldn't make eye contact with me. But uh, one of our good friends, who's a police officer, was there with his wife and a priest. So I knew. And I said, oh, my God, he had a heart attack. And they said, no. And I said, oh, he, car like I started making this list of what happened. 
is he alive? And, you know, they said no. And then they told me. So at that moment, I don't remember much. I remember thinking, I got to get to my kids. One was in North Carolina, one was in Maine. And they told me that, you know, news trucks were already there. So my thought was, I had to get to my own daughters before they hear it on Facebook or publicly. And uh, I believe, because it's kind of, my memories of it are still a little um, shaky. I believe the officer's wife that I'm very close with drove me home. And my sister met me there. So someone knew to get me support. So my sister was at the house. This other person was at the house with me, the officer's wife. And my goal was to somehow reach, and I made a plan in my head, this is what we're doing. You know, my daughter was married at the time. I got to get in touch with her husband, tell him to go home. So when I call, she has somebody. I got to get in touch with Lauren's boyfriend and get her out of class and make sure, because she was in college in North Carolina, make sure she, she has somebody with her. You know, so I had this plan that I was putting together to best support my daughters, because my thought at the time was just them. And at that time, we had one grandson who was two, but I knew he was with, you know, my daughter and now her ex-husband. What was somewhat difficult is our neighbors came over who are best friends with Tom and they brought their priest or pastor. Um, it wasn't a church that I went to and he started to talk to me, but he started to ask me if I wanted to share any of my sins. And at the time I just went, can you please leave? You know, it's like, I don't know what direction he was coming from, but I just at that moment felt that was um, not where I wanted to go. I felt it was kind of insensitive. I think I remember that. And I just wanted to help my daughters. So I asked them to leave and they did. And then we got my daughters home. And that was my goal at that time. Your body protects you in a way of trauma. And it was just too much trauma at that moment for me to digest. Um, and my thought was protecting my daughters. And um, they were very close with Tom, extremely close. And I think if you talk to any parent, sharing that the person they love the most besides you, know, you is their father, um, died by suicide, is that's probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Besides hearing the news, me sharing that with my daughters. Um, you know, the sounds of their grief, they just, you, you don't lose that. That kind of stays with you as their mom. That was tough. Yeah. Were you able to tell them in person or did you have to tell them over the phone? I had to tell them over the phone and then, um, you know, fly one of my daughters home and my other daughter drove to the house, but um, it was so public and it was all, I already had like outside my house, newspaper people. So I couldn't wait for them to travel home to hear it. They had to hear it from me. I think that was it. That was the way to do it anyways. They needed to hear it from me at that moment. Mm -hmm. How did you deal with the press? Were they outside your home? So this officer was phenomenal, uh, very protective. 
again, like I said, his chief never made eye contact or spoke to me, even as they were telling me, but um, came to the house and he pretty much stood guard, never gave anyone the right to interview me. I never talked to anybody. Kind of just shut down in my home, actually. Probably until the wake and funeral, we didn't leave. We just kind of hunkered down within the house, which was somewhat comforting because it's the space that I, you know, Tom and I had created for our family, for our daughter. So I felt, I think, the most safe there. And I really didn't leave until we had to for the wake of the funeral. Oh, absolutely. Was there um, conversation with whoever had found your husband and uh, how they're dealing with it? And One of the officers that found Tom, um, they've all retired after, within a year after this happened. Um, most of the people that my husband spent all those years with did retire. There's, it affects everyone um, and it has lasting effects so hard to even put into words. And I knew there was so much suffering going on at the police department, honestly. I um, I think they felt anger. I never felt anger with my husband. I only felt sadness that he felt so sad that this was a decision that he thought he had to take. But some of the people he worked with felt anger that he would do that, that he would do that to me or and our daughters or that that was, you know, his choice at the time. Um, but it's also because by the grace of God, that could be anyone. And I think for a lot of people in the community, and this, this is probably very common too, if it can happen to Tom and Leslie and Gina and Lauren, it can happen to anyone. And that's the that's the scary thing, I think, that the rest of the world fights or, and knowing that uh, makes people want to have answers right away. And, you know, the truth is with that type of suicide, there aren't answers. He didn't leave a note. He never expressed verbally to me or anyone else that I'm aware of that anyone's ever shared. So it was very sudden to many people. So at that moment, I think the police department my family, his friends, it, it was all trauma. It was all that sudden shock that everyone was experiencing. Yeah. And the unanswered questions uh, is you live with that the rest of your life because you never get the answer. You don't get the answers. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got to be hard because that never, it never goes away. I can't imagine that. I've learned to accept that. I've learned, um, you know, this becomes a, a fabric of your story. It's not a story I ever thought I'd be living. I can share, there were so many times after Tom died, even years afterwards, that I'd stop and see myself in the mirror and I'd be like, I don't even know who you are because that's not the story that played out in my mind. We were going to grow old together. And um, our kids were becoming very independent and this was gonna be our time to uh, really enjoy life. So I never saw myself as a widow at 51 or not having Tom in my life. 
you have to adjust that story. But I've learned to come to peace with, I don't know the reason, except that he, in my mind, he was in so much pain. It was his only way that he could make himself feel better at that moment. My screen gets blurry because tears. And that's where my compassion goes to, is to my husband. Because as I can tell you, he loved me. I know he did. He would never want to hurt me. And he loved my daughters and they were very close and he felt loved by me and he felt loved by his daughters. So something changed in him that was sudden and um, because he carries a gun, you can't take it back. Um, as a mom, how did you cons- how did you comfort your daughters through that? I got a lot of therapy for myself, first of all. And um, the thing that I learned is they have to grieve. I can't grieve for them. As a mom, you want to take their grief away. And I couldn't. So I had to give them the space and acknowledge that this is hell and we're going to go through it. And we're going to go through it together and I'm there for them, but I couldn't grieve for them. So there were times as a mom, I would suck up my grief to be there as they were having like a really bad moment. Um, but I also needed to give them that space that scream, you know, get it out. Uh, unless you've been through that kind of trauma, it's, it's different from everything I've read. And I have lost other people in my life to cancer or, you know, old age or um, different illnesses. So I have had losses in my life. This one is is different. And I think death by suicide is different for grievers, which is why the word survivor comes in. And I can't put into words or even share the grief and the pain, but you have to go through it. So my goal was to allow my daughters to go through it and not make them feel like they had to suck it up and be strong. Yeah, that's great. Um... It's still a journey. It's you're never there. I mean, it's been 11 years to me and I feel um, feel pretty proud of where I am today. As far as my daughters and I are still extremely close, um, it can fragment families. And I am both a grandmother and grandfather to those grandbabies that we now have. And, you know, I got up and I went to work every day and I paid the bills and I'm making a life. I'm, I'm continuing a life, even though we, we went through this trauma and the loss of my husband. Yeah. And I think your story will provide some direction, hope and inspiration for other families that have gone through it because it happens way too often. And, uh, I was reviewing my notes uh, yesterday. And when I came across the line where it said Leslie is a surviving spouse of Thomas Forbes, 
E-O-W. My tears welled up at the E-O-W because I see that way too often now, whether it be news, social media, whatever. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, this is real. It's one thing to see it on a page with a picture and you leave a little comment, prayers, whatever it might be. Um, but it, it hit me that I actually was talking to a survivor and um, I have chills. I can't thank you enough for you know sharing your story. It needs to be told. Um, how did you deal with, because I know sometimes people say, how can I help you? What do you need? And a lot of times when you're in that situation, you don't know what you need. Perfect question to ask. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Because we talked about, this is, uh, I think the grief journey is different um, when it's a loved one by suicide. And for me, because everyone's journey is so different, I was, and I am blessed to have two sisters that I'm extremely close to and friends. I have three very good friends. And I felt like, honestly, they made this circle around me. So they didn't let me fall. You know, if I fell, one person picked me back up. And uh, I had a friend who called me every single day on the phone for about a year, just called me every day. Those things matter tremendously. And you don't even know it while you're going through it. It's it's from my reflection that I realized how blessed I was to have had my family and friends that um, didn't ask me a lot of questions, didn't make judgments. They kind of just let me be how I needed to be at that time. And for me, if someone had said, what do you need? I'm here to help you. I would have said, I have no idea. But if someone, like I had a neighbor every morning that just on Mondays when the garbage was being collected, came over and put the garbage out. I cannot tell you those little things when you're, when you're just getting out of bed and functioning, those little things to life matter hugely. And, and without being asked, somebody just doing that, huge. A lot of people brought a lot of food, but to be honest, it was nicer to have when it snowed, somebody came and plowed me out without asking, um, did the garbage or we're running to the grocery store. What can I get you? Um, again, I was very blessed that my sister lived in my neighborhood. So she just always came to the house with dinner every night, you know, for about a year. She just always made sure there was food in the house. And a lot of people after the second or third week get tired of doing that. But oh my gosh, the people that, were there for me. They're still there for me, actually. Um, So showing up, I think I would never want any other family to experience this ever. But asking that question, you won't get an answer. But just taking it upon yourself to do it means a lot. That's great advice. It's just listening. I think a lot of times people get tired of listening after a while. um, And you don't want to always bore people with your story. As a survivor, it's like I always have this pain. And I don't always want to bring it up and be part of the conversation. Except if somebody asks me and I feel comfortable sharing, there's a lot of comfort in being able to share and talk about your loved one. 
and talk about good memories and not just, you know, thinking about how they died, but who they were as they lived. So if someone can be an excellent listener and just let the surviving spouses or children express those feelings, whatever it is, is very helpful. And that's what SBS does, by the way. They, that's what happens in our meetings is we get to share. Sometimes we get to lead the conversations. Other times they will have professionals on that know a lot about grief and they know a lot about um, blue suicide, which is huge. Um, there's a there's a very strong feeling, at, at least for me, when Tom first died, I felt very alone, especially after a couple of months when the world goes back and you're still left with the trauma that you're living. I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. It was, it was hard to be in school. I was able to take some time off. I think I was my best though when I was in the classroom, but when I was with my friends, I wasn't ready to be happy yet. And when I was out in the world, I wasn't ready to just be that free person where if you bump into someone, you have that conversation. And I didn't feel like anyone understood what it what I was going through, that it was a hard situation to share or expect other people to even understand. So I felt very, very alone. I just didn't feel like I fit in anywhere, even with family members. But um, being part of the SBS, you're with other people that tragically have lost a spouse or a child or a loved one and have had similar situations to what I've experienced, even though we all grieve in different ways. There's comfort in knowing that I can either say to someone, I'm listening and I don't understand fully your experience, but here's what, you know, I've lived through that may help you. And that's why it's so important you share your story because there are people out there that feel alone. So as you share your story, they can kind of relate and understand parts of it. And I'm so thankful Lori is here because she was a support system and a group for you. Especially with um, being part of a police family. My situation is it was a big change in, um, we didn't have a lot of involvement with the police department after Tom's funeral. So you go from being part of what you feel is an extended family to, again, very alone, very separate. There were a few members that I'm still close with, but a majority of them, they, they're battling their own pain and they're working through their own trauma. And so there was a huge separation, which is another loss. And then if your loved one dies in the line of duty, the community kind of comes together and celebrates that person's life. And, you know, there's the police memorial in Washington, D.C., and the Connecticut uh, State Police. There's also a memorial. There's a mass every year at uh, a church in Norwich, close by where I live, for law enforcement. But you're not part of that. And, and that makes it really difficult. And there are very lovely people that reached out to make Tom part of that mass, which was really lovely. But he's honored, but not in the same way. So, you, so 
you know, all these officers come in and maybe carrying a flag and from it is hanging their officer's name. And then Tom's name is mentioned in um, the pamphlet that people get. So he was being honored, but it, it was pretty obvious the difference of how his death was different from if you're killed in the line of duty, considering um, the difference of suicide. And that's a, that's a very uh, painful feeling because if you read about Tom's career and what he did for his department and community, it, I mean, he's amazing. He was so accomplished and he put his life on the line every day for everyone. But what SBS has done, this is my point, is um, they now, and I wasn't able to go this year, but I plan to go next year. They have a memorial for officers who died by suicide and they do honor them. And that's huge. And I, I cannot wait to take my daughters there. It's in Austin, isn't it, Laurie? So when we did this, I mean, there's so many things I could probably make this podcast last about three more hours to get awareness out. You know, I'm completely in awe of Leslie. I'm completely in awe of every survivor that has lost someone in the law enforcement profession to suicide. They are the strongest people I know. Um, they are loving, they are caring, and their pain and what they have gone through continue to help people. And I see it every time we meet that someone is sharing to someone that just experienced this within months. You know, this is the road that I walked being, you know, a little bit further out. And I see that all the time, which is the reason why we did what what we did. Why Shelly and I, there were many things. One, these survivors needed a blue family. Too many agencies don't treat them with the respect after the loss. Like, it's suicide. It's awkward. Society makes it awkward. There's this stigma surrounding it that no one wants to say this word. And heaven forbid somebody, you know, actually talk about it. But society is uncomfortable with death as a whole. And it, it becomes kind of awkward. But we want to change that narrative with agencies to say, giving them a funeral and giving them honor by the life that they lived, the dedication that they made to their community, to their job, to their department is okay. Give them the honor. Let's celebrate the life they lived and not how they died. And we're going to keep saying that as many times as we can as an organization because it's okay. It's not going to cause, you know, more suicides to have a nice funeral and to honor an officer that has given their life and, you know, their dedication, their career to, to their community. That, that is one thing that we're putting out there. We do have resources. We do work with agencies. People are opening up to talking about this and agencies reaching out saying, okay, what can we do? Is there a policy? You know, because you never know when that's going to happen, but people are open to this conversation. People are having it and we're going to continue having it 
you know, as many times as we can to get it out there. I'm really, Lori, I'm really seeing change within the police departments. Um, I can share that since I've joined this group, I'm finally able to share my story easier out in public. And I, I talk more about it. And the school district where I work, many of our security guards are now retired police officers. And just the other day, we heard you're retiring, which is true. And I said, and you know, I'm, I'm starting to talk more about Tom's suicide and getting the word out. And one of them came over and gave me the biggest hug. It's like a relief for them that I'm finally okay enough to say, let's talk about this. Let's get the word out. And these, he's now retired, but I could tell by that hug, he was so grateful. I was at the high school and the chief of police was there, not always for good reasons, but hey. And I told him too, I said, I'm, you know, I'm going to be doing a podcast and I'd really like to start getting Tom's story out there. And he knew my husband and he's like, thank you. That's amazing. Come in and talk to the department. And he's like, Leslie, if you ever do anything with SBS, like if you know how you had the honoring in Austin, he's like, let me know. We'll get some officers to go. So I'm starting to see a change, um, even in people are talking about it more and they want me to talk about it. I, there was a lot of pain when Tom died. And I think the fact that maybe out of respect, they didn't want to upset me. It, that's kind of, and now that I'm able to talk about it, they're like right there going, let's do this. Good for you. How can we support you? Keep going. Back in the day, like when you say 1980 is when Tom became a police officer, there was a huge mentality back then of buck up, move on, go to the call, buck up, get it done, move on, go and move on. Now in 2021, mental health is becoming acceptable. Agencies are talking about it. New York City's talking about it. Los Angeles is talking about it. Louisiana's talking about it. Um, you know, people are putting putting things out there that mental health is okay to talk about. It's okay not to be okay. You will hear that so many times being acceptable. Then you have great resources out there for law enforcement that can call outside of their agency, outside of their EAPs, because it's being talked about. It's becoming more acceptable to talk about mental health in 2021. And when Tom died in 2011, there was nothing. It was just me and I would seek out um, help. Some professionals um, don't have a lot of knowledge and it wasn't helpful. It was almost uh, hurtful more than helpful. For me, it wasn't until I became part of this group that I realized I had been living with so much guilt that I didn't even like, I just kept shoving that down, you know, getting through the day and shoving down that guilt. So one of the healthiest things for me being part of survivors of blue suicide is that guilt started to go away a little bit when I saw that other people have experienced this. And I was just carrying around so much like, what did I do wrong? I, I was his wife. How could I not see this? And the truth is that's, that's common. It's when I hear the stories of parents, I mean, who have lost their children, but you know, that's 
breaks my heart, breaks my heart when it's a child uh, who's in law enforcement, adult, but you know, I'm, I'm saying just to lose a child to suicide. And sometimes there's nothing you can do. And I'm understanding that. It's like, I stopped asking myself, how did you not see this? Cause that was every morning it seemed to wake up. It, it was like that, um, that show is at Groundhog Day where every morning you wake up and it's the same thing. And it was like, oh, yep. It wasn't a nightmare. It's real. And how did you not see it? Like that was every morning I woke up, that was the first thing in my brain. How did you not know this was coming? Um, and this group, it's, it's changed me. It's changed me. That honestly brings me to tears. This is why we did this. These, mm -hmm. these survivors need a home. They need the resources. They need the friendships, the love. They need their blue family. Um, and that's what Shelly and I do every day. Every day we come to work, we sit down and it's survivors. What can we do? What are the resources? What can we provide? Um, getting the name out there, finding survivors, you know, that maybe think, you know, like Leslie, 10 years, 11 years out, you know, there's still something for you in this organization. Um, there is still something for you 20 years later. There's still something to talk about you. I mean, that's, that's being a survivor. That's, you know, that's, that's why we're here doing what we're doing. Um, we did start this organization in COVID. So, oh my, wow, how we have changed. Um, so we started these Zoom groups and it started to be like the second Tuesday of every month, we have an educational session. So we have a member of our wellness support staff um, on with a topic. Um they're giving tools for the toolbox. They're giving resources to survivors to take away. Um, they're hard topics, you know, sometimes, but they're needed. They're, they're well attended and they're needed to talk about, you know, like tonight we're talking the empty chair, you know, there, there is an empty chair, um, how to get through that. We talked to, we've been talking a lot about the holidays. So that's the second Tuesday. Then we started the let's just talk, which is an open forum, still facilitated, but it's their time. It's the survivor's time to say, you know what? It's Wednesday on a random day of the month and I'm having a hard time. So it's their time to be able to share whatever's going on in their life. I'll tell you, it it's really not facilitated because the survivors lean on each other. They help each other. They're the first ones that pipe up because that's what they need. That's the biggest thing that they can have is another survivor. It's not us. It's certainly not about us. It's about them and they help each other. And that brings, I mean, I sit there and I see faces that I saw a year ago and I see faces that I see today and they're completely different faces. And I know it's because they have this group, they have other survivors because I'm not a survivor. So my advice and my is not the same. It's not, they need that togetherness, that I've been through what you've been through and I see moms helping spouses and children helping siblings and nieces getting involved with, I mean, it's every family member that we 
include that we say, here are resources, utilize them. Um, but it's not just spouses to spouses. And it's not just parents to parents. It's everyone to everyone. Um, we do split off the groups to let spouses have time and parents have time. And then in 2022, we're adding, you know, as we've grown as an organization, the groups have gotten bigger, adult children, siblings, coworkers, um, to try to give them an opportunity to talk because that's where the change is. It's all in them. That's why I say they're the strongest humans that I know. And I'm in awe of them every single day. And if I could say this, if you wake up and you're a survivor, you wake up and you breathe in and out, you're doing good day. Feel your feels. If you feel it, feel it. If it's coming, feel it because that's how you grow. You know, this grief is never going to go away. Leslie is never going to forget Tom. It's never, you never get past grief. Like so many people say, are you over it? Like, why aren't we past it? It's every day. It's every day for the rest of your life. But the group it's it's that validation. And that's so huge for survivors. It's huge. It's that acknowledgement, the empathy, the compassion, the validation. And that's exactly what SBS is. Can you share the name of your um, Facebook page group? And then I'm also going to put that on my website as well for people who would like to attend those meetings. So on Facebook, we're just at Survivors of Blue Suicide. Um, our Zoom sessions are for survivors. So that's on our website under the virtual calendar. So if they sign up with us, so if you're a survivor of law enforcement suicide, either active or retired, that's another piece that people often don't know. So we don't only include or, you know, uh, look for active officers that have taken their life. We also serve the families and coworkers of retired officers um, because there are a lot. I think that's kind of overlooked sometimes, too, is like retired officers really, you know, have a struggle in those numbers, you know they grow. So we serve the survivors of active or um, retired. And so our website, and to get information, there's a, I am a survivor form that they can fill out um, to start getting information on our monthly virtual sessions, our in-person programming, and then our national conference um, that's annual. So we started that this year. Um, we had a memorial wall made. Um, so right now it's um, it's a traveling wall. So we put the officers' names of any person that attended, like family member, our founding committee, our board members. Um, and then we stood up at that conference and said, we're going to promise you here today that we're going to find a home for this memorial. We're going to find a physical place in a city that's accessible to not only survivors, but the community to honor these officers. Um, so we did have our first conference in San Antonio. We are looking at where to go to in 2022. We don't know where that's at, but we are going to keep searching for the home until we find it. Yeah, that's great. Is there anything else you want to uh, share, Lori? And I think, Leslie, I'll give you the last word. Um, and if you want to share another memory, I would love that too. I just want to say thank you. Like, thank you for having us. And, you know, like I said, we could do this three more times and find more to talk about throughout this because it's, it's a very layered topic. Um, there's a lot to get out there. 
Um, thank you to Leslie for being so open and being amazing and just being somebody I admire and give energy to do this job um, and to, to serve you guys. It's an honor. It's the biggest honor of my life. So thank you. Yeah, right back at you both. Thank you so much. And the truth is, I think, sadly, if you look at me, I look like any other uh, 62 year old woman, right? Living her life. And if it can be my story, tragically, it can be anyone's story. So it's so important to get the word out to make suicide, not have that stigma, to help our, our law enforcement people be able to get the help, the support, the love they need so that it doesn't come down to a choice like that my husband felt like he had to make. And to continue to support survivors of suicide, extremely important to the work that Lori and Shelly and you by having this podcast as well. Just so grateful. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you, ladies. I'm going to go ahead and, and close for now. And uh, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to I Need Blue. This is Jen Lee. Thank you to my guests today, Lori and Leslie. Visit www.ineedblue.net again to hear all of the episodes. Also, I can be found on all of your podcast platforms. There is a Facebook page, I Need Blue. Thank you for listening. Remember, you are stronger than you think.